Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. Find all episodes of this show. Simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life-led tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP, or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to MTP, the number four, and the letter U.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. So give us background in how this all started. Um, we know you've been an airline pilot for quite some time, which seems to keep most, most people very busy. But you also ventured into the journalism part. You have your own blog that's quite popular at Ask the Pilot. And you also wrote a book, um, Ask the Pilot, Everything You Need to Know About Air Travel, which I think has been translated into 11 languages. Uh, how did that happen? How, how did you own life and career how did you how did you plan it well that's a that's a long story um let's start with the aviation aspect of it first um i've been into planes and and into airlines since i was a little kid going back uh, literally before i can remember um whether it was first grade second grade i i don't know when i got into planes but i did and it's just always been there from my from my perspective um but i i was not into airplanes themselves so much as as the whole theater if you will of air travel um airports airlines airline culture um when i was a kid i would i would study route maps and and timetables of the different airlines memorizing the the places they flew and 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 the types of airplanes they used it so it wasn't just about planes and the hands-on excitement of flying as much as i enjoy that it's it's always been the whole the whole business um everything from airports to to like i said airline culture um you know a lot of it is the airlines themselves um just you know studying the different carriers and, and their histories and where they've flown and which planes they've used and 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 so on and so forth um but specifically i did always want to learn to fly and and to become a pilot which i did and that was a, a just a, a very long process that had uh, numerous pitfalls along the way before i finally got to the point where i was you know making a good living at a, at a respectable airline and I was in my 40s before it all 
finally panned out the way I hoped it would. And, and that's not unusual for people in aviation. Um, you know, I know colleagues who've, who've worked for nine different airlines and, and been through multiple bankruptcies and, and layoffs and, and liquidations. Um, it's, it's not an easy business. Uh, but for me, it eventually worked out. Meanwhile, to go back to the, the second part of your question, um, I, I guess I've always had a little bit of a creative side. Um, nothing too serious, but it, it would always let itself out in, in different ways. And then one of those ways was through, I guess, creative writing would be the best way to describe it. Uh, it was never anything I expected I could make a living from or even make money from. But what happened was after 9-11, when I lost my job for almost six years, um, I didn't know what to do. I, I didn't want to go take some crappy flying job making minimum wage again. Um, so I just thought I'd try something else. And so I started doing these freelance pieces and selling them to uh, online magazines. And, you know, the way that worked is the first one becomes two, becomes three. And eventually I had a, a weekly column on the website uh, salon.com it was called ask the pilot they came up with that name which is where the whole endeavor came from and i did that for a number of years um had a, a weekly and then it was even the semi-daily for a while and it was it was quite popular and it, it led to other uh freelance gigs and and i would get assignments from magazines and and so forth uh, the salon thing eventually, uh, I guess, burned itself out. It just, uh, it, it was there for, I think, 10 years. And, you know, I was tired of doing it. They were a little tired of it, too. And, and so eventually it, it went away, as, as I expected it would in time. And I took the product, so to speak, and created my own website out of it, which is what askthepilot.com is. And also along the way, there were two books uh, the first book was published back in 2004 using the Ask the Pilot name, which I, I always despised as the name for a book, but they insisted on it. And then a few years later, um, I sold uh, a second book to a different publisher. That book is called Cockpit Confidential. And while I don't especially like that name either, it's... Uh, it's it's worked. The book uh, was a New York Times bestseller for a while and uh, has been translated into I think um, eight or nine languages. I'm not sure exactly. The most popular of which has been Polish for some reason that I don't understand. But whatever. Um, and so there's there's the website and and there have been the books and various side projects along the way. Yeah, I can kind of. <clears throat> guess why it was so popular in, in Poland. Um, I grew up just like 50 miles from the Polish border and oh. like half Polish. So uh, the, the aviation geekiness runs high in Poland and also really? UMA. Yeah, it's something that is, okay. I think, in every boy's DNA, I'd say. That's true everywhere, but it, it goes to extremes, I feel, um, especially in Poland. And I always wondered how you came up with the titles for these books. and. <laughs> Now I know the story. I always felt like the, the titles are not as good as the actual book. I think the books are, are both, um, from what I read, um, are, are excellent. And they give you exactly this inside view into the cockpit and answer a lot of questions about what is actually going on there. And I feel flying at, from a cockpit perspective 
from a, from a pilot perspective, when, when we as passengers and people who are in the aviation industry, um, even if they've, they've um, been in the, uh, the travel industry like myself for the last 10, 15 years, we always feel there's a certain aura of prestige um, if that emanates from pilots. There is this, this idea of um, a pilot is, you know, like a, a big cruise ship captain, is, is the person who's saving lives every day. And it's kind of seen as, um, as something that is as far away from minimum wage as possible. <laughs> so I'm curious, you just mentioned that, and I know this is, is something I just recently learned. It is a problem um, in a lot of regional airlines. A lot of pilots surprisingly don't make a lot of money. <clears throat> That's that's definitely true, and that this is a, a huge topic we could talk all day about. Um, just to go back a second, though, I think that uh, mystique or uh, prestige, uh, as you described it, probably isn't quite what it used to be. When I'm sitting in the back of a regional jet and I just see people with their head against the sidewall just wishing they could just get the hell home and they don't give a shit who's flying the plane or how. Um, uh, yeah, I noticed maybe... Flying in other parts of the world, um, pilots are maybe still held at, at a you know a, a level of more mystique. Um, I, I don't know. Um, you know, like anything, I guess maybe that's part of the evolution of technology. Something that was you know once considered, um, you know, that once had this aura to it is now just so commonplace that you know the people at the front end of the airplane doing the work are just just workers to a lot of people. Um, which, you know, I, not to diminish my own impression, I, I don't agree with that, but I think that's how a lot of people probably look at it. Well, there's this famous <clears throat> saying, and I think it was Akbar Al-Bakr uh, from Qatar Airways, who was asked about um, pilots and unionization of pilots in the Middle East, which is kind of rare. Typically, the, the pilots and um, cabin staff is usually unionized, at least in the U.S. and Europe. Mm -hmm. And he was asked, he said, kind of diminishing, I felt that he said, you know, this is, this is just a driver, it's a driver of the subway. So he just, <laughs> that pilot just pushes a button and I don't care what they think, um, I want them to go on. I don't know what the specific problem was, it's probably the, long, the, the length of the shift um, and how long these pilots should work. And so it was very, very much the end of that spectrum. <clears throat> I was shocked by that when he said that. Well, he's not the first airline CEO to say things like that. I mean, you've probably heard some of the comments by uh, Mr. O'Leary at, at Ryanair. Uh, part of that is politics. Um, I, I wish the job were that simple, um, but it's it's actually pretty challenging at times. And, and there's just a tremendous amount of knowledge and training and experience that, that go into the job that I think is, you know, I think that's lost on a lot of people. And... Um, to your point about the salaries, um, things are better than than they were. But uh, entry level pilots, especially at the regional carriers, uh, don't don't have it easy. Um, when I was flying regionals in the 1990s and even into the 2000s, uh, no 90s, early 90s, mid 90s, late 90s, I don't think I ever made more than. Twenty-five or thirty thousand dollars in a year, you know, as as a captain on a thirty-seat uh, turboprop. Um, my starting pay back in 1990, flying a, a fifteen-seater, was about nine hundred dollars a month, take home. No gross, less than that, take home. 
Um, there was a lot of years in your past. Yeah, and Robin. And and it was a long time before I made what most people would consider a decent living. Like I said, I was in my in my forties before things, you know, finally stabilized, and I could look at my paycheck and not be embarrassed by it. It's a little different now. Regional pilots do better. Um, a, a reasonably senior regional airline captain can make a hundred thousand dollars or more. Um, but it's not until you get to the major carriers that the salaries really go up. The problem is getting to a major carrier. Um, you know, right now, we're in kind of a special situation, but even in, in normal times, um, when these carriers are hiring, the jobs are astonishingly competitive. And there's a relatively small number of openings and thousands of pilots applying. Um, I, I'm known to make an analogy to baseball. Um, you have however many young athletes who set out to become major league baseball players and, and how many of them actually get there. It's, it's, it's a pretty small number overall. And it's, it's similar in aviation, especially now that the regional airline sector. And when I'm, when I say that, I'm talking about the different express and, and, uh, connection carriers, the, the small airplane affiliates of the majors, that sector has gotten so big. It, it now accounts for, 50 percent or so of the business um when i started out it was maybe 10 percent so because of that um a lot of pilots will get to that level and that's just where they stay never making it beyond the regional level because that like i said that sector is just so big and there are comparatively few major airline positions open is it still true that most pilots aspire say um, a large flying on a larger plane a triple seven flying international is that something that people really want um despite the relatively grueling time change and the different shifts and the long layovers or is 90 percent of pilots they're really happy with say they they fly a few hours out but they typically sleep at home most of the nights that's a great question and um as a general rule I would say most pilots want to fly the biggest airplanes to the most glamorous destinations, okay. but not all. Um, when I was younger, all I ever wanted to do was fly a wide-body jet internationally. I mean, that, that was the holy grail. That was everything I, I ever aspired to, and, and eventually I did it. And I'm kind of at the point now where I, I don't necessarily have to keep doing it. I, I'm perfectly happy to go and fly short haul domestic routes. Um, they're not as fatiguing. Um, you, you, you physically fly more, which is more fun. Um, there's, there's good and bad to both kinds of flying, but I've having done the long haul flying, I, I, I'm less fond of it than I was when I first started doing it. And what, it, what planes again, and airlines did you fly for? Yeah. Um, well, I can't say who I fly for now. Okay. Because um, not identifying who they are allows me to, to do this and to do what I do. But I, I, I work for one of the larger commercial carriers. Let's, let's put it that way. I fly a 767 and also the 757 where what the 757, 67 is one of the, the few examples where a pilot can be qualified on two separate models because they share almost identical cockpits. 
Uh, it's an old plane, um, early 1980s vintage, but uh, very reliable, and, and, and I, I still enjoy it. When, when, and that, that was the story, I think, with, with the Qatar CEO. There seems to be always a lot of talk about how long-haul long pilots can actually be in the cockpit. So from what I remember, there used to be two shifts at least. So it was three hours or four hours, and then there was a mandatory break time about the same. Um, and that was changed later on. So a lot of pilots, and I noticed from a friend who, who used to fly for Lufthansa, they used to have two shifts and two sets of pilots when they went to the East Coast from Europe. And then one day, uh, Lufthansa said, we're not going to do this anymore. You're going to stay by yourself in the cockpit. <laughs> just two, maybe one relief pilot. But I think they got rid of the third pilot as well. So they basically flew at nine hours, about nine to ten hours um, from airport to airport. But they still had that for the West Coast destination. I think eventually they got rid of it for the West Coast destinations as well, which is like an hour or two longer. Um, how does this work in most planes? Are they, is it really the same pilot still who flies these long distances, or what, what are typical shift hours? The, the protocols on this really vary. It depends on the country whose uh, regulations you're operating under. It depends on the airline. It depends on the airline's uh, in-house policies or the, the union policies. Uh, the, there are differences. As as a general rule, any flight more than about eight hours is going to bring along at least one extra pilot. Um, and you'll work in kind of a rotating shift. There'll be always at least two pilots in the cockpit and one pilot on break. Then that pilot comes back and a different pilot goes on break. So in the end, you, you work about two thirds of the flight and have the other third to rest. On flights of 12-ish hours or, or greater, you will usually have four pilots uh, working in two teams of two. And we'll, they will switch, either do half and half of a flight or take multiple breaks. It, it, it can be done different ways, depending, like I said, on the, on the country, the airline, whatever the union stipulations are, the contractual stipulations, it, it, it depends. Yeah, I've, I've seen pictures, and I think they made their rounds the last couple of years of these really luxuriously looking rest areas for pilots <laughs> and for cabin staff. They look better than first class. Um, maybe a little more cramped, but they look perfectly life-flat and, and cozy. One thing that I always wonder, being that I'm pretty jet-like most of the time when I'm flying somewhere, so it's not just one flight, it's a series of flights, I always feel like I would have a hard time falling asleep. I'm just, I can't sleep on, on a push of a button. As some people can do this, I can't do it. Um, it needs to be at least 13, 14 hours and then I can fall asleep. So I always feel if you have these mandatory yeah. rest periods, how likely is it that you actually get some sleep? Uh, I'm like you. I, I, I find it very hard to sleep on a plane, especially if I'm working the flight. Um, as a passenger and I'm, you know, maybe watching a movie and drinking some wine, it's, it, it's easy to fall asleep. But when I'm working, it's uh, a different feeling, a different mindset. I, I, I don't sleep easily, so I will use my break to eat dinner and, and watch a movie or some TV shows. And, and occasionally I do, uh, I do fall asleep for a period of time. It, it depends on the direction of the flight, the time of the day. Um, how tired I was or wasn't to begin with, whether I'm on the, the first break assignment or the middle or the last one, it, 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 it can vary. Sometimes I sleep, sometimes I don't. And the, the uh, quality of the rest compartments on the plane I fly, it's just a business class seat with a curtain around it. 
Um, other airplanes have quarters downstairs uh, in a module. Others uh, upstairs under under the ceiling. There are uh, bunks uh, sometimes in the back behind the near the aft bulkhead or down under it. It it it, it varies on again on the plane on on uh, the configuration and which options and and rest modules an airline happens to buy for that airplane. It, there, there are all different ones. When you look back into your flying career, which is now about 20 years, is that right? Well, I started flying commercially with the, my first regional airline in 1990, and here it is, uh, 2021. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, how many years is that? Do I need a calculator for that? I think we can we can uh, cock this, but so it's quite some time. What I was curious, what do you feel was your closest encounter with a with a somewhat dangerous or unexpected situation where you felt, whoa, this was pretty close? <laughs> no, I'm asked that all the time, and and the closest answer I have to that is an incident where um, we came relatively close to hitting, hitting another plane in midair. Um, the asterisk being it was in 1986 when I was 19 years old and and flying a, a little four-seat Cessna under what we call visual flight rules. Um, yeah, it was sort of a close call, but it was it was also operating in a realm completely removed from commercial aviation. And as a commercial airline pilot, uh, knock on wood, I just I don't have anything to compare it to. There really hasn't been anything that, that jumps I'm, out I'm, at me. I'm, yeah, I'm curious about this close call situation you had. I I was on a flight um, to Jakarta and we were holding outside um, of the airport, not for long, maybe five minutes. And there was a, this was a large plane, it was a 777, and there was another Turkish Airlines. It's seemingly maybe less than 200 feet below us and maybe 500 feet away from us. So I could literally see the passengers through the windows. No, you is that something that's still within the normal um, <laughs> frame of what you would expect because it is safe enough? It seemed extremely close. I'm not sure if you uh, were flipping through my book and may have picked up on a section that talks about this, especially your comment about seeing passengers through the windows, which is completely impossible. Um, this is something I hear all the time. Uh, passengers have um, a I habit have taken of, some video. Of, <laughs> but I wasn't quick enough. Passengers have a habit of misjudging and vastly uh, exaggerating the distances between other planes air to air. Yeah. Um, planes look uh, closer than they really are, especially when you're remembering it. Um, it's it's very uncommon to be closer than a thousand feet vertically. With another another airplane. In fact, I, I have a picture in my archives of uh, that was taken out the window of another plane a thousand feet below and slightly offset, and you would never believe that it was a thousand feet, but it was. Yeah. Um. So th there's that. It's it's not people's fault. They they just aren't good at at judging vertical or horizontal separation distances with other planes, and it's you know part of that is how you're. Kind of wired in that moment you know oh, oh my god there's a plane it's right there well it, it's not actually right there and as far as seeing people through the windows which if i had a dollar for every time i've heard that i mean you can be 20 feet away from an airplane at the gate and you can't see people through the windows 
So, yeah. you know, trying to see somebody through a window uh, in the air, uh, looking at another plane in the air, you know, 500 or 1,000 feet away, it's just completely impossible. Yeah, it might be quite a trick that my memory plays on me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So 1,000 feet is kind of the safe range, right? So it, it couldn't be in the same 2D sector, but it should be 1,000 feet apart vertically. Well, again, this varies if we're talking about the... Uh, the, the, the cruise part of flight, arrivals, departures, on approaches, uh, you know, there are times going into San Francisco, for example, where you're on a, a close-in parallel approach with another airplane that's just, uh, you'll, you'll be staggered, but uh, horizontally very sure. close to the yeah. other plane. And if you, if you look on the uh, interwebs, there are thousands of pictures of uh, pictures of planes taken out the window of other planes landing at San Francisco with captions like, oh my god, we you know, nearly collided with this plane. Well, no, you didn't, but, but it is unusual to be that close, but, but there are airports where that happens. Yeah, well, it seemed like from my observation, this wasn't controlled. So the other plane was there, but it had its own course. It went somewhere completely different, so we weren't in parallel approach and we weren't even in the same holding area. Um, so it went somewhere yeah. completely different. Eventually went to the same airport, but on a different approach path. We had to wait a little longer. So there would be. Uh, it's if, it's if, possible if that something line, was yes. that, that something was off, and and the, that was some sort of unintentional near miss. But I I seriously doubt it. I think the airplane was just further away than, than you think it was. Oh, that's absolutely um, possible. But, it, so, but I'm just trying uh, again, to find out from what's the, the minimum if, if, altitude. Well, it, it it depends where you are and which realm of flight sure. you're in. Okay. Uh, cruise flight. Uh, a thousand feet vertical separation is is about what you're the closest you're going to see. There was this incident. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago. There was an A380 flying um, just west of the Maldives, um, and um, I think west of west of India. I don't know where the specific location was, but it was an A380, and there was a, a small private um, Gulfstream. I think that was the plane model, um, which is the, uh, about a dozen passengers. And it was right underneath the A380, and apparently it created such turbulence that the plane had trouble staying in the air. At least that's the myth, um, from what I remember. And the plane declared an emergency, and eventually um, they got it under control, um, relatively close to the ground. Um, that must be really rare, right? Because you only read this every couple of years. It is very uncommon. I, I did have a wake turbulence encounter once, uh, landing in Philadelphia back in the early 90s. I was flying a 19-seat turboprop, and we were landing behind a 757. And 757s are known to have uh, especially uh, uh, violent wakes that spin behind them. And, and we got caught, even though we were within or, or beyond the minimum separation distance. distance. We got caught in the, in the vortices, and the plane, you know, in, in my mind, it it, it felt like it had flipped us 90 degrees. Um, in reality, it was probably a good deal less than that, but it was startling. And the plane was going that way, and there was nothing I could do to, to make it not go that way until you know we exited the vortices and, and were able to move the plane back to, to level flight. And we actually continued on and landed, even though we were only at, I don't know, maybe three or four hundred feet when this happened. The, the whole incident took maybe three seconds. But yeah. uh, it was yeah, relatively harrowing, I suppose. Not on the level of when I was in the Cessna and almost collided with the other little plane, but, um, you know, still something that I, that I remember vividly. 
And that was the early 90s. And here we are in 2021, and I, I can't think of anything else. Yeah, for a while, this that, that kind of demonstrates busy. how how few and far between these these types of incidents are. Yeah, I believe you. Um, but the skies were really busy right until early last year. Uh, now they're not. Fortunately or unfortunately, depends on how you look at this. Um, I think unfortunate. <laughs> it's very unfortunate. Um, how do you think this whole this whole COVID crisis will play out. Um, will we go back to the same route networks? Will we go back to the same passenger volume? Will it all look quite different compared to what we've seen? Well, what's your personal expectation? I, I really don't know. Um, to this point, and I was pretty pessimistic when all of this started, it's turned out to be much worse than even I guessed it would be or forecast it would be. Um, you know, eventually, in a eventually, the the big picture will look pretty much the way it did before, but certain things probably will will always be different. Um, there are just so many moving parts with this. Whether we're talking domestic U.S. flying, uh, international flying, short haul, long haul, it, it, it you know there are there are. Uh, it comes down to what different governments and different parts of the world are gonna are gonna do as far as opening borders and relaxing quarantines, um, how long that takes and where it happens, where it doesn't happen. Nobody really knows, and it, because of all that uncertainty, it's 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 hard to predict. Not so much what will happen, but when. And by that I mean I I, I think at a certain point uh, this will be a memory and and. Flying will be normal again, but how long that takes is is what we don't know, and how much damage will be done along the way. Airlines going out of business, people losing jobs, and and all of that. And I've I've been lucky. Um, you know, I, I I didn't lose my job, and actually, ironically, um, the past six or eight months, I've I've flown more than I have in any six or eight month period for as long as I've had my current job, you know, going back 20 years. Um, yeah. uh, and that's because I'm senior enough in my, in my position, at, in my fleet, in my seat, where if I want to fly a lot, I can. Um, other pilots, though, have, have not been flying at all or very little. So well, a, I, lot of, a lot of know, variation the, the, there, too. Yeah, I would assume you, you are active in the cargo sector right now because that seems to have taken off. Uh, quite strongly. There's Actually, much no. Uh, al almost all of the flying I've done is, is uh, just normal passenger flights, with a couple of exceptions. Um, okay. And many flights are full now, or as we say, COVID full, because you know, seats are blocked, and then there are fewer flights overall, so flights are consolidated. But I've I've been flying a lot. Um, other pilots, not so much. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. I mean, I definitely hope it's going to go back to normal or to the new normal. Um, oh, very I, I despise that expression. Don't say that. Yeah. <laughs> new normal. It is just become a I, I have a whole so. list of just COVID-related words that I just don't ever want to hear again, and that's uh, that one's <laughs> up, up near the top. That's maybe, maybe a good plan. I like that. Uh, talking about the 737 MAX, it seemed like it's it's dead in disguise for quite some time after these two horrific in incidents and 
I flew it before, but before um, it was grounded, and I flew it after that. Um, do you think it's it's going to come back for good? I know it's been um, widely being pushed in service now. It's being recertified. Do you think we, we did the right call there? Yeah, I think the airplane will be back. I mean, Boeing has so much invested in the thing, and, and there were so many outstanding orders. Um, not a lot of room there for it not to come back. Um, at, a, at a certain point, I think most of this will just be forgotten. Now, should the 737 MAX exist in the first place, that's uh, a different conversation, maybe. Um, I, I have this issue with 737s in general. It's not a safety issue. It's just, you know, the fact that the, the 737 was designed in the 1960s, basically as a regional jet, you know, to fly... 300 mile legs with 75 or 80 people. It had a set of stairs that came out of the fuselage because it was designed to fly to airports that didn't have jetways. Um, and, you know, Boeing over the years, over the decades, has pushed and pushed and pushed that plane um, into roles it was never really designed for. And they've kind of made a monster out of it. Um, you see the thing now, it's, it's stretched out, it's got fins sticking off it. It's, I, I call it the Franken plane. Um, because they were too lazy to, to go and build a new airframe from scratch to take on those roles. Instead, they just kept forcing 737s on everybody. Uh, there have been 10 different variants of that plane, bigger, more powerful. Um, the, and the, the culmination of that was the MAX. Uh, instead of uh, Boeing building what would have been the 797 uh, 10 or 15 years ago, and introducing that, they just kept pushing and stretching and stretching and monsterizing the 737 and created this beast out of it. And, and is that why the, the MAX disasters happened? No, but there's there's something in that that I think should should be a wake up call to Boeing that, OK, enough with this plane. You know, let's let's move on to, to something all new and, and, and more modern. I have a picture up on my website. I don't know if you saw it. It's a, a photo of the, the nose section of a 707 from 1958. And next to it is the nose section from a 737, uh, next generation 737, just, you know, a couple years old. And the, the, the two planes are nose to nose and, and they are identical. The architecture is exactly the same. It's unchanged since the 1950s. Um, you know, the, the 737 still has the same 707 windows, and you notice the rivet lines are even in the same places. They've just stuck with this design, and then, you know, they're, they're trying to convince people that a plane conceived in the 50s is the future. And I, I just, I, I think they should just stop going there, and, and let's, let's come up with something new. Why do you think there is so little innovation in the aviation industry when it comes to planes especially? I know that the, uh, there's a lot of computerization, there's a lot of automation, there's a lot of stuff that happened there, but why do you think the plane design and Boeing made that step and Airbus made it too with the A380 and the Boeing with the 787, but in general, there seems to be a very haphazard um, innovation the way it worked and very little innovation. Why do you think that is and how can we change it? Yeah, everything now seems to be variants of existing planes rather than yeah. all new cool airplanes. I mean, you go back 
you know, when I was a kid, you had you had the 707, the 727, the, the 747, the DC-10, the DC-9. Uh, these planes were so distinctive that you could spot one six miles away and you knew immediately what it was just because of the, the profile of, of the plane. Um, it, it just seems like so much more care was put into the design of these airplanes and that's probably looking at things too romantically. Um, you know, modern planes, you know, even the 737 MAX, you know, they're very sophisticated. There's a lot of uh, technology and, and, and hard work that went into building them, but it, it's just somehow it's just not the same. Um, you know, the, the last all new airplane that Boeing came up with was the 787, which is now how old? Um, and it just, it seems like there's just nothing out there on the horizon except just, you know, more variants of what we already have. Um, well, it seems there, is, there isn't enough innovation to come up with a different airframe design that, that is within the specifications by the airlines, right? So we want a, a plane that's more fuel efficient, we want a plane that's more comfortable, we want um, a better air, you know, that's a little bit of what we got with the 787, there's more humid air. So that seems to be the, the airlines are really focused on their bottom lines. and. Um, well, that, that's to, always that's always been the case. I mean, that, that right, hasn't changed. But they have to advance. They have, but, but you would think that they would be on the lookout for a plane that's revolutionary better. Because, yes, not all the airlines would buy it, but there would be one airline because it's so competitive would say, okay, let's try this out. Like British Airways bought like 200 seven, eight, 737 MAX, even when they were grounded. So one of them will buy mm -hmm. them. But somehow, but, but the A380 stop, saw stop that. Stop right there. The, the, the story that you're telling right there is, is in a lot of ways, uh, the story of the 747 back in, in the late 60s. Uh, Juan Tripp, the, the CEO of Pan Am, uh, he, he wanted that airplane. Nobody else really did. And he, you know, being the visionary that he was, kind of talked Boeing into building it. And check this out. The, the, the 747, when it debuted in 1969, was more than double the size of any existing plane. Yeah, it's and a massive plane. It's a massive plane, but in its day, especially, I mean, to be, you know, you had the 707 and the DC-8, this was twice the size. Um, and uh, this is pretty remarkable. That plane, the 747, went from a drawing on a napkin, it was literally sketched out on a napkin, to an actual flying airplane in two years. I, I mean, that's just just incredible. I mean, nowadays you can't even get a, a, a version of an existing plane into testing for that long. Never mind. It, it would be as if somebody said, let's take the A380, double the size of it, and have it ready in two years. Uh, completely impossible in today's uh, aviation culture, I guess is the best way to describe it. You know, the way the Airlines and the regulators and, and the, the airplane makers yeah. all kind of tie in now. It's such a, everything is just kind of frozen, it seems. Well, a lot of people blame it on regulation, exactly. And uh, I think that's a real issue. It's almost impossible, unless you're Boeing or Airbus, to get anything uh, through the FAA or through the European counterpart. And Boeing and Airbus have this kind of cozy um, oligopoly that they created. And there isn't a lot of interest especially after the A380 demise, that they haven't creating something really new, right? It works as well, and they, until like a year ago, they couldn't even finish the orders they had. Like, there was no need for, for them to really experiment with anything. So, 
it's it's a typical outcome of of an industry that's heavily regulated until technology goes to a completely new level right electric aircraft maybe now smaller aircraft or maybe supersonic that might get us a different a level of regulation for a while at least so someone can actually experiment with something new again no, that that's that's true and everything i said a few minutes ago notwithstanding uh, you know the kind of romantic why can't we have a cool looking plane angle um you know we we may be up against a a certain limit i mean we have pretty much every combination of range and passenger capacity figured out um you know we don't we don't really need something completely new in the the, the way that we're the way that we're thinking except when you get into um you know uh, alternative ways of powering an airplane i mean it's just you know very paradigm shifting scenarios of of you know moving into sustainable fuels and then different kinds of engines you know there's you see these um sketches and mock-ups now of these kind of flying wing designs and all these conceptual ideas that uh, I, I don't give them a lot of hope at least now because aviation is so glacially slow moving and you have so much infrastructure that that is built around airplanes just you change an airplane you have to change all of that also and that's part of why things uh, kind of stay the way they are for so long well there is this massive amount of planes now that we don't use so um, I'm curious what will happen to them I hope they're going to go back to service they are not just being scrapped uh, which happened to the A380 surprisingly early seems mm -hmm. to be the, the the symbol for waste so to speak um, do you think we're going to see most of this fleet coming back, or it's just going to going to go straight to the junkyard? I don't know. Um, yeah, I know that right now Emirates, you know, has what a hundred A three eighties in storage, uh, yeah. something like that. Uh, what what is going to happen to all those planes? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, will will all of them come back? Will some of them come back? And over how much time? It goes back to what we were saying a minute ago about how long this all takes to come out of and what the recovery looks like and what it doesn't look like. Uh, it, it, it's hard to say. One unfortunate um, uh, outcome so far has been, you know, almost the total demise of the 747. Uh, I think at the moment, Air China and maybe is Lufthansa still operating a small number of them carrying passengers? I, I don't know, but all of the rest are gone. And, you know, they were scheduled to be phased out even before this began, but this, um, you know, kind of slammed the door and suddenly basically all of the 747s were grounded. Yeah, it seems and, the 787 and the A350 are the only ones that are being flown long haul, um, unless you have 777s, which probably are out there mainly for cargo, um, it seems, because a lot of routes. Even, I, like, San I, I see, I see a good number of, of 777s, the 200s and 300s out there um, right now, yeah. carrying passengers and freight, uh, A350s, A330s, uh, pretty much everything except the 747 or the A380, though I did see a... China Southern uh, A380 in Los Angeles uh, a few weeks yeah. back. Uh, who knows how many it people? It seems to be the carried. only one that's back. Yeah, yeah. I had the same impression. You know, I was stalking you a bit on your Instagram, <laughs> and uh, it seems like we have the same love for 
some airlines. Um, so Qatar Airways is definitely one one of my favorite, if not the favorite. And uh, you also seem to be uh, liking Emirates. Um, I saw a couple of pictures. Um, what do you feel is the winner of the next ten years um, within that? You know, relatively small but prestigious premium segment. There's also Singapore Airlines, there's Cathay, um, some of the American airlines, and especially American airlines wanted to move into this. What do you think will we say in 10 years, oh, this is the best airline in the world? Uh, that's a good question, and I don't know because of everything that's happening right now can, can upend the industry in such a way that when we come out of this, uh, things could be switched around. And airlines that used to be what we considered the premier service carriers, uh, you know, could be suffering so badly that, that that's not the case anymore. I don't know. I really don't know. Um, it's it's kind of frustrating because, um, you know, for the longest time, the U.S. airlines were notorious for just having crappy service compared to the European and Asian and Middle Eastern airlines. And starting from early 2000s up to when all of the, the pandemic began, you know, that had really changed. And, and you know, first in business class service on the U.S. carriers was uh, comparable and in some ways better than what you would find on a lot of the foreign carriers that were once, you know, hailed as the best, uh, with certain ex exceptions. And, you know, now all that's kind of out the window. And, and whether it comes back that way, I don't know, but I was I was really happy to see the U.S. carriers, you know, upping their game to the point where they became competitive with, you know, the 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 the, the Cathay Pacifics and the Singapores of the world. Um, no, they're they're never going to have beds in first class with rose petals and showers and and, and all of that. But you know, for for the, the average business traveler, um, they developed a very good product. Um, all three of the big uh, U.S. majors did. And all that is kind of on hold right now. Yeah, it seems like that, that premium segment isn't doing so well. And uh, no. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that Qatar Airways has at least kept up the frequency to most of their destinations. Um, where they have kept up the destination but reduced the frequency, so to speak. And they only fly um, a couple of times a week instead of a couple of times daily. Um, that seems to be a relief, but they seem to be the only ones who are kind of well, they, they don't have to trouble with the bottom line, right? They're, so they seem desperate <laughs> or interested. Well, it's, it's, uh, in, it's, in it's easy for the Gulf up. carriers to keep their game up because, uh, you know, they're, they're government funded. And sure. um, it's, it's, you, you can't really compare. Um, I, I keep looking at, at Emirates and Qatar and, and, and wondering, you know, so much of their business, virtually all of it, revolves around the transfer of passengers between continents, um, and and that's that's stopped right now. Here in the U.S., we we're lucky. We have a relatively healthy and getting healthier domestic network. Um, th these other airlines don't. Everything they do depends on long haul intercontinental uh, flying, and and nobody's doing that right now. And there doesn't seem to be much improvement on the horizon for that. I, I you know looking ahead, I just don't see any trends in that direction. I do see strong trends for as far as domestic travel here in the US uh, picking up and probably travel within Western Europe too. Um, but as far as, you know, Asia to North America and, and, and the other combinations that, that 
these other carriers rely on, and that's that's the Gulf carriers. It's airlines like uh, Singapore and then Cathay, and even the big European airlines, Lufthansa Air France. It's, it's it's so much of what they do depends on long haul connections and and uh, not just leisure traffic, but business traffic. And and there's just not, as I just said, I just don't see any movement on that. And you know, so how long they can they can wait this out, I don't know. Uh, the Gulf carriers obviously can probably wait as out wait it out as long as they need to because the government just the, will will always support them. But what about Air France, British Airways, Lufthansa? Um, you know, they they don't have as much support and they don't have as much time. Well, I think they they're becoming more and more a state funded entity in its entirety. And I think there's going to be another bailout and another bailout. I cannot see of the scenario where Germany will not bail out Lufthansa. It's never going to happen. They might have 100% of the equity and have hold 99% of the bonds. But the, the country can do it like at infinitum. And uh, I was flying Lufthansa yeah. last October. And the flight attendants and the flight was completely empty in economy, maybe 10 people. I was a little more busy in business class. And I asked the flight attendants if that's normal, and they're like, yeah, that's actually a pretty heavy load for this A350 on that day. So it's been going on for six, seven, eight months prior to that last October. And I don't think anyone worries about that. So maybe the cargo pays for it, but it's essential for, for a country like Germany to maintain certain connections. And they will never give up on this, even if the flight is 100% empty. Uh, you could well be right in the case of Germany and Lufthansa, but I don't know if that's the case across the board. Um, you know, not not every country is going to prop up its national airlines for an indefinite period of time. It's just, it's, it's, yeah. it's not going to happen. And then when you go back through history, um, you know, countries have let their airlines fold, uh, Swiss Air, uh, Sabina, Malev, um, other examples too. You know, Alitalia. It seems to be <laughs> air, continuous air, bankruptcy. And never airlines, Alitalia has been bankrupt for 60 years, I think. Yeah. It's, uh, every time it I see an Alitalia plan, I laugh. Yeah, it seems to be their business plan to just be, be bankrupt all the time. And uh, I think there's a, there's, it's, there's a strong motivation to do this. Obviously, if we're talking 50 years, probably it's not going to happen. But then at that point, nobody's ever going to travel anymore if they travel the United States so low. We're back to like the 50s or like you know, Second World War time. <laughs> where barely anyone could afford to fly. Well, wait. That 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 itself is a great uh, a great topic, a good point. Um, and I think maybe you'll agree with me that it's one that's lost on a lot of people today. And that is how cheap air travel is. Um, you know, back when I was a kid in in the late seventies, yeah, you know, in my in my school class, I was probably one of only ten kids who'd ever been on an airplane. Um, and the main reason for that is flying in those days was expensive. It wasn't something that you know everybody just went and did the way they do today. Um, you know, I've seen different graphs, different charts, and uh, you know, I want to say uh, one I've seen the, the price of air travel today. And when I say today, I mean pre-pandemic into kind of where we are now um, is about half of what it was 25 or 30 years ago. And when you go back to the 60s and 70s, it was even more expensive then. And you know, I, I, I don't think most people realize that. You didn't just, uh, you know, hop off to Cancun for the weekend um, with your friends. Things like that didn't happen. Okay, perfect. 
But flying on the whole, flying is much much cheaper than it used to be, and and that that includes after factory again all of those ancillary fees that uh, people hate so much: fees for baggage, fees for food, or whatever add-ons. Um, but uh, the way I look at those ancillaries is it's it's a way of keeping fares low across the board. Certain people can pay for certain things they want, and, and those who don't want them don't have to pay for them, and that that allows fares to remain affordable for everybody. Uh, I think it's an underappreciated... It's, psychologically, I don't know that it works, because people, you know, they feel taken advantage of, and they feel nickel and dimed, and usually it's younger people who don't remember when it costs $3,000 to fly to London. Um because that you know the, the, today's generation doesn't remember the pre-deregulation um, airline business and how how expensive it was to fly and how most people didn't do it. Oh, I agree with you. It's an underappreciated fact that how the aviation industry has changed in that aspect. <clears throat> but I think what people have learned, and this is the sign of times, is that the they, they expect a similar trajectory like the iPhone. So you get a better device for the same price every 18 months, right? And it's just, it's twice as good. It's not just a little better, it's twice as good. And that's the expectation. A lot of youngsters live in that world, but, but this is, seems to be, it's Moore's law. We call it that way now. It seems like a natural law. And I think they look at the aviation industry, <clears throat> and I'm not 100% sure why it is, but they look at the aviation industry in a similar mindset. So. They want something better for the same price and relatively quick um, scaling um, trajectory, or they want something for much cheaper. And there is good solutions for that. And I think the, the airlines have profited from the internet quite a bit, right? So their ticket sales became mm -hmm. much easier, uh, much more efficient. And they sure. have some new planes also, and the price of oil is down, at least compared to the 70s. Um, it's still fluctuating all over the place. But I mean, there is only so much space you can cram people in. Um, there's only so much you can do to make a route more efficient. So I'm quite surprised how far we've gotten, right? So we, we probably are 50 to maybe 60%, maybe even more um, efficient in the airline industry than we were in the late 70s, which is quite great. Sure. But it's not that infinite scale that we had in semiconductors, mm -hmm. right? Where we are like several thousand times more efficient than in the late 70s, where, you know, the iPhone is the same CPU power as a whole um, supercomputer you had in the 70s. So that's why I'm hoping there is more to it. And now we see it with the electric planes maybe that are maybe on a similar scale. Um, it will take some time to take off, but once they do, the innovation can be really quick because we just enter a whole different curve. That's kind of the hope that a lot of people have about aviation. It definitely hasn't happened yet, but I know Peter, Peter Thiel's famous saying is we want the flying cars and what did we get? We got the 140 characters on Twitter. And uh, that's that's something that is to a lot of industry observers, including me, it's very frustrating. Um, I feel like we should have these wonderful jets, we should go to space, but none of this happened in the last 40 years. I can't really say whose fault it is. Um, I want to blame it on regulators, but they will blame it back and say, well, we made it the safest industry ever. Um, so flying is safer than driving, which is really surprising because you sit on a on a fireball, literally. It's, it's very safe, seemingly, right, in terms of statistics. And it seems very counterintuitive that it's so safe. Maybe, and that's just me, maybe, and I'm curious about your position, if we wouldn't have this crazy drive to make it so safe, which makes sense, right? So people are scared of flying. But if you just take a smaller subset of the population who's not scared at all, 
it would be more dangerous, but maybe we could go supersonic or maybe we could go to space and then come back. <laughs> I would like that. It's certainly not 100% of that, of the addressable <clears throat> market, but maybe 10, 20, 30%. Hmm. No, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, that, that, that was all well said. Uh, you know, I, I think, though, that we're, we're a long way from electric commercial airplanes and, and going back to supersonic flight for any number of reasons. Uh, one of which is just the general inertia that is aviation. Yeah. Um, uh, what you were saying about passenger expectations and, and, and all of that, I, you know, part of the psychology there is uh, people just love to hate the airlines. Um, and that's never going to change. I don't think people are ever going to be satisfied. I think it's mutual. Um, the way the way airline employees hate passengers is is epic. <laughs> it's really epic, and that that goes for the passengers I, too. I, I don't hate passengers. passengers uh, that's like baseball players hating the fans. I, I mean that that's you well, you are exempt, but the cabin cabin staff and the ground staff. It's, it's so a friend a friend of mine worked at the airport, and she was not in love with any passengers or any of their demands, and it was very palpable. So I don't know what it is, but it seems the industry that's most antagonistic. I, I can't think of any other industry where people hate each other so much. <laughs> I yeah, I don't I don't know that I would agree with that. Um, but yeah, you're 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 gonna find bad examples at the airport. Um, and uh, I, I don't know, uh, you know, the part of that is that we've managed to make the air travel experience so much more logistically difficult and tedious and time-consuming than it really needs to be. Um, and just, just starting with airport security, for example, and it, so much of, of flying from city A to city B is just standing in line and just waiting for things to happen and, and being yelled at through public address announcements. And you know, all of that kind of hassle and, and tedium has created just a kind of level of frustration for everybody and that includes employees and maybe that's how it, it manifests itself i think airlines were getting better at that too um and and it's it's too bad because now everything is kind of on hold or being reset there's a part in my book where i talk about um you know pass passenger frustrations and airlines uh, you know telling the truth and being forthright and honest with customers. Uh, people always seem to think that the airline is lying to them. And then, you know, really that's, that's not the case. Well, what happens is you have so much compartmentalization at airlines. You have all these different departments that have their own priorities, their own goals, their own languages in some respect. And when, when something happens, say it's a maintenance delay here, the way the, the details and, and the specs of that situation get passed from department to department before the message is finally delivered at the gate over the microphone, things get scrambled up, um, garbled, uh, misinterpreted, and, and, and people are often left not really knowing what the story is. And, and the airlines aren't doing that intentionally but there, there's kind of that inherent dysfunction in the way they're put together. And, you know, that's something that, that some carriers are better at than others at addressing. And on the whole, I think there was some good positive movement on, on um, get, just getting better at that until all of this happened and, and who knows where we'll be next. 
Well, I think we all realize that airlines, just like banks, are too big to fail, right? And that usually brings with it even more regulation, even more money that rains down from, from above, and you don't have to worry, you don't have to compete. And it, it makes it a state business sooner or later. And for a while, because when times was good, we, we kind of denied that reality and realized that banks should not be too big to fail and we don't have to rescue them. But in the end, we have to because we need those institutions. We kind of can switch around between different airlines, but if all the airlines are in trouble, which is what happened in March, or most of them, maybe the exception is Spirit, but it's not an airline you're so proud of. Um, so you, there isn't much of an answer that anyone comes up with, and we can all rail against the Fed and the easy money and, and what happened to the tech industry. But the problem is there is a moment when things are too big to fail on an institutional level, and you always think, oh, it's just a year or two, and then we're going to be fine. And then the next crisis comes around. I think nobody has a good answer for this, that we are running between these cycles of, oh, let's just fix it for now, and it's going to be fine. And then it is fine for like two or three years, and then it's over again. So we'd be kind of making these airlines and the banks, they become a Soviet Union. And I lived in Eastern Germany. I know how this game ends, but it ends pretty badly. Because you end up with very stale, uncompetitive industries that are, they produce something, but it's not competitive with anywhere else in the world. And I don't know if anyone has a good solution for this, because we see this across many industries. And we we, we kind of need a shakeup and, and to live without this, but I think we're too rich for this shakeup. So someone needs to show, and I think China is helping us a little, they're showing us what you can do if you put entrepreneurship in. They are basically a Soviet Union style country, right? But they still have embraced um, it so much and they're behind us, right? So they didn't have these huge airlines to contend with 10, 15 years. They are weirdly enough showing us what to do, which is really ironic. Mm. Well, it is ironic. I don't, I don't know how completely true that is. And then, you know, our situation thus far is this hasn't been about saving an airline. It's been about saving an entire industry. Yeah. that drives, you know, X amount of the economy and employs, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of people, uh, what choice did they have? It's not that it was one or two airlines that was, that was at risk. It was the entire industry. Yeah. Um, there's simply no way you can, you can allow that to, to collapse. Um, but to your point of what that, you know, may, uh, turn us into uh, industry-wise at some point. Um, I, I I don't know. I think they're going to be state-run. Most big airlines going to be state-run very quickly again, everywhere in the world, mm. anywhere in the world. And then there's a bunch of LCCs that kind of are nimble enough and lucky enough because they're not as effective because it's mostly domestic flying anyways to to be competitive. I think this was kind of what we had before, but just now it becomes more stark and more extreme. Um, they kind of merged a little bit, both of these sites. Um, I think this will go away. Um, uh, th th that could be. Um, it's it's interesting. You've seen um, certain LCCs that were popular, and I don't know if successful is the right word, but but doing brisk business anyway. Uh, Norwegian, uh, AirAsia X, um, you know, long haul LCCs that got into the international market, which is a very difficult thing for any LCC to exceed to uh, succeed at, and once this all happened, they, they basically collapsed. Um, but already there's talk of new long haul LCCs jumping in to replace them. Yeah. Um, you know, Norwegian wasn't doing well to begin with, so they didn't have a lot uh, to work with once this happened. They were kind of doomed. But that, well, doesn't, sure mean that, that doesn't mean the model is doomed. Uh, it's always going to be a challenging model, low cost, long haul, but it's uh, it's, it's something that 
the right airline could be very successful at and could be, as you were saying, you know, pushing us towards this this industry where you have you know, airlines at the very top and then LCCs doing everything else and kind of no in between. Yeah, I think in LC, long haul LCC, LCC will work. What they've done, obviously, they have a small capital layer and they didn't get as much state bailout, but you can, this routes, and I'm sure some Norwegian routes are highly profitable, just not the whole network right. because they were growing so much also. And they had these big plans. But if, if you just focus on those, if there are still passengers around, sometimes these passengers have, of course, all evaporized, um, evaporated. But if, say, you go Norway to Cancun or Norway to Mexico City, I think you, you, would, you would easily fill 787. As it is, there's new routes that have come on that nobody really serves that might make a killing right now. So it's, it's very hard to forecast. And I mean, it's, if, if you think of it more as a charter airline, and you don't have to schedule out 12 months in advance and you can be more flexible. I think there's a lot of money to be made. It's just this hybrid between, you know, you want to be chartered because it's so flexible, but you kind of want to be also be sold by GDS. You want to show up everywhere, which charter islands usually don't do in most of these marketing channels. If someone can figure out a hybrid in between those, I think there's a lot of money there. Maybe. Uh, and we just don't know yet how the, the logistics of air travel are going to are going to pan out as we come out of this. Uh, the consensus seems to be reasonably that uh, leisure travel is going to be the first and strongest to recover. We're already seeing that. Um, and that's both short haul and long haul, whereas business traffic, particularly long haul business traffic, will be lagging far behind. Whether that by itself is enough to drive the kind of changes you're just talking about, I, I don't know. Yeah. You've been to to a lot of countries that are definitely on my list to go to. So I wanted to kind of get your, your, your lay down on them. You, I don't know what role, maybe it was an official role as, as, as a pilot. Um, you went to Liberia in Africa. Um, you went to, uh, I think Afghanistan, is that right? No, no, not Afghanistan. Pakistan? But I have, I have been to Liberia. Yeah. How was your um, experience in Liberia? How much, how much time did you get around? Well, let me uh, let me back this up. Um, I, I I like to fly. I like to travel. Those are in some ways the same thing, and in some ways very different things. Um, it, when I was a kid, it was my my love of of air travel that got me into geography, and I think it came directly from studying airline route maps and memorizing the the capitals of countries, and and that became an interest in wanting to actually go to those places. And so that, that kind of grew out of my um, love for aviation, my you know, desire to travel and, and, and see places. And that's, that's also part of why when I became a pilot, I, I had my uh, ambition set on flying long haul international because I wanted to visit as many countries as I could. Um, so, uh, you know, probably half of my traveling has been on the job work related and then half has been stuff I've just gone and done on my own um, but the, the the two are, are related in, in a, an interest, interesting way I think and it, you know a lot of pilots believe it or not just don't like to travel and you know maybe yeah. wouldn't even have passports if, if they weren't required to um, you know for me it, it's 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 hard to have one without the other, but for other pilots, it's it's more just the, the hands-on thrill of flying in and of itself, and where you happen to be flying to is not important. Where for me, it, it always has been. It's been 
you know half the almost uh, half or whatever of the of the experience it's it's not just how you get there but where you're going and so yeah because of that i've i've traveled a lot um I, I'm asked sometimes, well, what's your favorite place? And then there's no way to answer that because you travel to different places for different reasons. Um, the the Liberia experience you, you mentioned was just uh, uh, literally three or four hours on the ground in between flights doing a, a turnaround. And, then, and I was there with a the crew and, and the plan was just stay on the airplane for four hours and and then we would turn around and fly back to ghana where we had come from and i i, I couldn't do that I'm, I'm in liberia and it's it's right there on the other side of the airport fence I, I have to get out get out of this airport and see it or i can't it just wouldn't feel the same i can't put the pin on the map and what i ended up doing is we we paid a um well, actually it was, the, it was the airport manager at uh, roberts field in liberia who I kind of got a little friendly with and, and, you know, ran this past him and he said, Hey, I think I can work something out for you. And he called a driver in and, you know, we paid this guy $50 or whatever it was. And he, he smuggled us out through immigration and customs and into the back of his pickup truck. And off we went for four hours, just driving around some of these uh, small towns in, in Liberia, just, you know, meeting people and taking pictures. And then, back to the airplane uh, an hour before departure. And I remember walking back through the airport with mud all over my pants and my shoes just all caked in, in mud and dirt. Um, and I, I went back there two or three times and, and did kind of the same thing each time. And interestingly, one of those trips was at the height of the Ebola crisis back in uh, 2000. Help me out. I think it was 13. Yeah, eleven. Yeah, there were a couple. And that was one of the times when we didn't leave the airport because uh, Liberia was, you know, one of the country's hardest hit by Ebola. And it's it's eerie now when I go back and look at those pictures, and I have some of them uh, posted on my website because all the airport workers had masks on, and everybody was afraid to go near everybody. It was it was uh, eerily uh, uh, precursor to to kind of what we're dealing with now. Yeah. I show people those pictures, and they think they're were taken recently but they were you know eight years ago yeah yeah that's quite quite eerie um i i uh, well ebola is a whole different kind of disease right but it's very very deadly um it's kind of it's hard to contract for this point out once right. you have it it's very deadly and um we kind of have the opposite now but obviously that's still very deadly and we are not really used to that um when you when you think back to your to other countries whenever relatively few um travelers go and i i think i saw pakistan i saw i saw el salvador on your list correct me if that is wrong and um i just had james wilcox on a couple of weeks ago he goes to somalia every year not during COVID, but he guides tours to somalia um puntland and somaliland so right. there's a bunch of countries where we feel there is a natural apprehension to go there often for safety reasons or for reasons and you know i'm an extreme traveler i've been to 130 different countries but there's a few countries that make it a little harder they're more expensive or you need more preparation it's hard to get a visa um when when you think of those countries where you probably had a little bit of apprehension too 
when you came out on the other side, um, was it generally a positive experience? Were there situations where you said, oh man, that was really hairy, I shouldn't have gone there, that was a mistake? Um, what, what's kind of your overall picture on that? I don't think I've ever left a place and, and thought, you know, oh, I don't ever want to go back there. Um, there are places I'd be happy never to return to, but I wouldn't. I can't think of anywhere where I would, you know, actively avoid going because I felt unsafe or, or was otherwise so turned off by a place. And and it's not always uh, safety and security that that go into that. It's it's just how you felt as a tourist. You know, how did did you feel welcome? Did you feel hassled? Um, were the things you saw underwhelming? Uh, was it what you expected, more or less? Um, uh, things like that. It's uh, and as I said a minute ago, you go to different places for different reasons. Um, sometimes you want to see a city. Sometimes you want to go into the forest. Sometimes you want to swim. Um, so it's it's it can be hard to to compare trips and experiences because of what brought you there in the first place. Yeah, it seems to be a lot of travel anxiety um, that's pre-COVID or let's see how it looks post-COVID comes from the fact that you are not aware of territory and you perceive it as dangerous. And maybe there's good reasons for this. And it's, you know, for every every person has their own steps out of a comfort zone you don't want to do. And I've talked about with, other, with this about with other travelers. And what we generally agree on is that there is... For a lot of people, what they perceive as anxiety, we perceive it as curiosity. It makes us even more interested in going there because there seems to be something that is unique and nobody else has experienced, which seems kind of odd, right? But it seems to be that has a certain part of the population has this exploration gene and is ready to just basically just not uh, listen to this anxiety, but say, okay, this is the most anxious place I, I can think of in order to go there. So this is where I want to go. And as you say, most people, a car coming back, 99%, I think, of people are coming back and say, well, I maybe didn't like it as much as I thought because I was more more excited. Um, there's sites that I've been to and I thought they were a real letdown. And then I went to the Taj Mahal, which I thought is totally overhyped. And I thought it was way better than, than, than the hype even says. So you never know before you actually hit that place because it obviously depends on the time of day, how people interact with right. you. And it depends on the weather. So there's a lot of variables that go into this. But I think this is a quite a quite a strong um, feeling from all the travelers. There is rarely a trip where you come back and say, well, I really regret making the trip at all. Mm -hmm. Maybe I wouldn't go back. As you said, you know, there's countries where they, they didn't really talk to me. Um, there's places I went. I'm like, well, I can't really read anyone. There's nothing for me to do here. Um, but I feel... And that's interesting is to say that once you change your perspective of this trip, I went to a lot of places 20 years ago and was kind of not happy with them. And then I went back 20 years later with a slightly different perspective. Still, I wouldn't necessarily live there, but a slightly different perspective. Like I used to live in Delhi and then I went back a couple of years ago and the place changed so much. And I didn't like it as much when I lived there. But now that I visited it again, had a lot of places I can associate myself with. I thought it was wonderful. One of the best places um, to go back to for like two or three weeks. So the perspective changes a lot. But... Generally, people say, this is something I feel very proud of, and it fulfills me living my life. Yeah, I, I think very few people, even people who are squeamish at the outset, uh, regret traveling. Um, yeah. It seems like almost always people are, are glad that they did it. 
And again, though, people go to different places for different reasons. And, and so much of it is just your your own mindset and set of expectations and, and the way you interpret uh, your example of, of going to Delhi um, it shows that, that it, a lot of it maybe wasn't the city, it was you and, and how you felt compared to how you, when you had been there before. And, and somebody next to you may have had a totally different experience. Uh, it's, 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 it's hard to say. And yeah, also, you, you, yeah, no, this spells, this spells positively for the general overarching theme, right? So I, I, I said that before in another episode that I feel no one who, who traveled a lot will come back and will nuke the place he just visited. It just doesn't happen, right? You, you might not love it, but you, you respect the people there and you respect what they're up to. Even if you go to like Afghanistan or Pakistan, places that we perceive as war zones, even if they're sure. not. Sure, no, I, I agree with that completely. Um, there's a segment in my book where I talk about kind of the the negative of travel, and, and by that I mean you're often exposed to a lot of things you just wish you didn't see. Uh, you know, environmental destruction, pollution, poverty, and and that can be that can weigh on you to the point where you know some there there have been moments when I've gotten home and just wanted to flush my passport down the toilet and never leave home again. But yeah, that that's always kind of a, a fleeting reaction. And then, you know, the desire to travel always comes back. But, uh, it, you know, you see great and amazing things, but you also see terrible things. But uh, that's that's part of the experience and, and should be anyway, part of why you want to do it. Because you, you're, you're learning and, and, and seeing things that most people know about only uh, in an abstract kind of way. Well, I think it's harder. It's gotten harder for other people to ignore each other. And as it's pros and cons. And I think a pro is that we, we, we learn about how other people live and respect. And we are facing that reality. And I think the U.S. is better than Europe. But in Europe, I think it lives in this bubble, of this mind bubble, even if it's a relatively open economy. It lives in this mind bubble of the European way, the German way, the French way, the Spanish way. And they know other places exist, but they do anything they can do to not get any information from these places. Like that nothing comes through to, into their bubble of comfort. And uh, the Europeans are not the only ones who do this, but I think they've, they've built a very strong system around this. And even do they travel, they, they travel in this comfort zone. And as you say, uh, seeing these problems, these problems exist irrespective if you visit or not, right? It's, it's important mm -hmm. that you confront the real world, I always felt, right. and not live in this, this world you build up. And now we do it with COVID, which is very unfortunate that we all live in this cloudified world of whatever we think is our, our um, picture. Um, the world is so, it's maybe so different and, and it might be so traumatizing to see this, but I call it a positive PTSD, right? You come back and you, <laughs> you, you experience other places and you're also able to see what you are capable of once you you experienced it. It might be negative in the first place, but I think it turns out positive and helps you to see the world in the real light. And, and like you said, whether or not yeah. you're there, it's, it still exists. And yeah. in, in some ways, I think it's, it's incumbent upon you to, to actually go and experience it at least uh, once or twice in moderation, whatever. But just to, because that will in turn change the way you live your life and react to other things. You know, having experienced this firsthand and seen these things that otherwise for most people just exist only on TV or on the internet. Uh, it just, it, it, it does something to your level of awareness. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I, I went to a shanty town in Cameroon, which was kind of the, mm. the, the, the most crazy I got with this. But I felt like it was, it was in the end, it wasn't a scary experience at all. It was like a guided tour. I literally just went with a driver and uh, um, was hoping to come back in the same, the same state I went. And I, I did, fortunately. But it's, it's something where you feel bad for a while. But I think after a few years, you reflect on it and you feel much better and more, and more complete human. And there is this, this, this very strong desire of people to explore. And I think that's always there. But it seems to be we, we, we put this on the avenue of, of staying in our comfort zone. I think this, there was something wrong with the way tourism worked until 2000, early 2020. We, we, we had a lot of people going more than ever, right? But they stayed kind of in their own mental mindset and they didn't interact, maybe for good reasons, maybe for bad reasons. They didn't really interact with the real world out there. It was this made up world of, of travel, tourism, marketing. Nothing that was really negative. And you see this in Thailand, which is very opposed to letting any foreigners in. Um, and I think this is a result of 30 years of, I don't want to say that word, but 30 years or even longer to have very mixed experiences with most tourists. And, <laughs> They've seen it all, right? And Thailand is a very, how do I say, a very accepting country, but they haven't, I think they have a strong desire to, to close this thing up for a decade and then maybe start really slow again. So something went wrong when we designed this, this tourism experience that isn't in the mind of how travel should be. And I can't really put my finger to it. Oh, I, that, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, we, we created a monster out of international tourism. And, and, you know, if you've been to the islands in southern Thailand, just as an example, you, you kind of saw it at its worst. Or downtown Edinburgh in the middle of the summer. Um, you just thought, okay, enough. Um, and now we have this time out and, and how it, it resolves uh, remains to be seen. Um, but uh, good points. And, and to back up a minute, you said something uh, a moment ago that I thought was interesting. You, you talked about um, experiences, travel experiences being different just depending on, on variables like what time of day you're there or the time of year or, or how many other people happen to be there. You know, that really can shift how you uh, take in a place. Um, just the, the, the logistics of how and when and what time. And to bounce this back to to the airlines, I think that's true with flying as well. Um, you know, somebody would say, "Oh, I I hate flying on whatever airline. They're terrible." And and all that happened is they had one bad experience on one flight at one time. And yet, you know, somebody that same day at, at that same airline on a different airplane with a different crew could have a completely different experience. And it's it's very hard to be categorical. When you're talking about airlines and, and when you're talking about travel as well, it, it so much just depends. Yeah. Yeah, I went to Costa Rica um, last month, first time for me. And I was surprised how well um, dispersed and spread out tourism works there. I, I, I didn't think it would be possible. It's not cheap Costa Rica. It's the same price level basically as the U.S. Mm -hmm. But the way the whole country is spread out and there's little roads and there's a little resort there and then there's a little beach town there they somehow pulled it off and maybe it was because it's so expensive um maybe it is because costa rica costa ricans are geniuses i don't know what it is but they they pulled off a tourism that seems to be and any kind of tourism it doesn't have to be a fancy uh, eco resort doesn't have to be it can be a backpacker hostel i think whatever i saw was the, the quality of, of, of tourism infrastructure was very high 
it was obviously the press wasn't as crowded as it could be, but it was it was so spread out um, and so well done. I, I was amazed, and it was on a low level, right? It isn't it isn't a very poor country, but it isn't a rich country either. Mm-hmm. It's somewhere middle income country, and maybe that's I don't actually know how they do it, um, and maybe it was an accident. But it seems to be a model how we could develop this globally, and I was really surprised to see that so that it works so well. Well, Costa Rica has always been, they've always had a reputation of kind of knowing how to do tourism better than most countries. Um, they, they take it seriously and, and they want it to be sustainable and, and, and done right. It's been a long time since I've been there. Um, and they have, they have the, the money and the mindset to do what other countries don't. Um, a comparable example maybe would be Botswana in Southern Africa. Um, you know, a relatively uh, prosperable country for you know, in, the, in the context of Africa, anyway. Um, you know, they specialize in in kind of higher price, lower impact tourism, and um, you know that's that's I think a better, more sustainable model than just you know, letting everybody in on on you know cheap package deals and just crowding the place up, as has happened in. South Africa or Kenya and elsewhere. Um, yeah, it sounds very elitist, right? So I don't, lo- I don't yeah, know how I'm, it sounds. It, you're right. It, it doesn't. It does sound elitist, but I like cheap too. You know, don't get me wrong. I like a good deal too. So I'm, I'm not opposed to this. But there seems to be something what, that innovation typically goes to a place where someone can do something better and cheaper, right? So this is where the hot, this is the hotspot entrepreneurial success. But it seems for country at on a global or tourism level, even regional level, this this it seems to be broken. Maybe it's just a time frame issue that over a long time frame, these things will actually work out. But we we saw this in in Philippines. We didn't see this in Malaysia, but we saw it in Thailand and many places that kind of have been ruined for generations. Mm-hmm. When I went to the southern um, Thai islands in the late nineties, it was it's paradise. And 10, 15 years later, it was one of the worst places I can remember. So it changed mm-hmm. very very quickly. And I think, I mean, the Thais, maybe they're too entrepreneurial, but they are, they're great hosts, right? So they, they, they know how to, to create tourism infrastructure and they really want to work with you, right? So I don't think it's, it's necessarily, I wouldn't, wouldn't pin it on the, the Thai tourism entrepreneur. So I don't really know what the problem there is. I, I'm sure the airlines are not the ones, and I think they, at one point, that was just amazing. I think it was Emirates alone, they had, eight or nine A380 flying just from, from um, Dubai to Bangkok every single day. To Bangkok day. every day, yeah. Yeah. I think at one point they had six or seven A380s a day, I think it was. Yeah. And, I mean, there's, um, there's a Qatar and doing, Etihad doing the same thing, all the European airlines, all the massive influx. So I wouldn't blame the airlines on it because, you know, they have to, to go up where the demand is. But one day maybe I'll know the answer. I just know the question so far. Well, Bangkok was what the most visited city in the world in 2019, and uh, however many people flew into Bangkok and then branched out, whether they went north or, or south to the islands or, or stayed in the city. Uh, but it was the, there's there's no denying the place was overrun, um, yeah. especially the, I mean the islands as as you just described were you know borderline just intolerable. Um, in uh, how they proceed now and how other countries pers- who were in the same situation proceed now remains to be seen. But yeah, we, we, we did kind of make a monster out of international tourism. And then part of the way that happened was people being able to fly 
as cheaply as they can or could. Yeah. It just allowed huge numbers of people to go uh, insane distances at, at, at cheap prices. And as you'd expect, people did it. Um, <laughs> how much of that will change? I don't know now? what that. I, I, I don't know what that says about people. So <laughs> no, now we sound elitist again. Um, it's, well, it's, it, we it's sound elitist, but experience. what's the downside? The downside is places get ruined. Um, yeah. It, I mean, but it's that, not is that the price so, you want to pay to not be elitist? I, I, I don't know. But the the, the locals, um, what happens even in Thailand, and I think it happened in other countries too. You know, they shut down. What was the the, uh, the Philippine island that they shut down for like a year or two before that? That I think the locals have this strong aversion to to tourists or anyone who's not local, and that that sooner or later boils over. I mean, maybe it's a cycle. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's a boom and bust cycle. So then it boils over, things get closed for a couple of years, and then they come back eventually. Maybe that's that's just what we're experiencing now. That could be. And then you know we're, we're cherry picking examples here, but you could throw in um, Barcelona or Amsterdam or uh, Edinburgh. Um, you know, places that just were just kind of at, at their limits. What what was going to happen if this didn't happen? If yeah. the, the coronavirus pandemic didn't happen? Um, you know, these places were already just ready to burst. And, and uh, one way or the other, maybe this or some version of this was inevitable. Yeah, we had Melissa on, and she, she was saying a lot of people who are futurists, people who think a lot about the future, they've been turning very pessimistic and kind of thinking about prepping themselves for a disaster scenario all the way down to 2018, late 2018, 2019. She says it was very visible and she has the documents to prove it. Like this was visible before. So there must have been something else that really came up with this notion there is a disaster out there. And I think a lot of my friends also, they were ready to call it a disaster right when COVID first hit, which right. kind of surprised me how quick they made up their mind because we didn't know. Yeah, I, 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 I saw it coming. I, I made that prediction as well. And all my, everybody I knew laughed at me. And yeah. But it, uh, I look at uh, climate change as an analogy. I mean, you know, here's the evidence, you know, everybody agrees on this. Um, you know, this is going to happen and yet there's, it, it's completely impossible to kind of galvanize everything that needs to be brought together to do anything about it. And so it's just going to happen. Well, it's just, it's and, probably the opposite guy. I would say climate change, it's, it's people, people see there might be a danger to it, but they don't want to react. And I feel with COVID, it was the opposite. It, everyone was ready to jump on this and say, okay, this is the end of the world. And, um, <laughs> We would have found something else, is my theory. If it wouldn't have been COVID and the mm -hmm. Chinese would have kept it under control, then we would have gone crazy about something else. We would have found something. Um, we were all ready for this, which is really odd. So this, this boom and bust cycle, this is more economic thing, seems to be ingrained in our lives, right? So we need that. It's not just, and Soviet Union didn't have that, right? Because it was pre-planned, but I think this economic boom and bust cycle, something that works in our brains and that grounds us again, which we are now doing right now. And hopefully we're gonna see another boom in a couple of years. Yeah, I, I think that uh, that could all well be. On this positive note, Patrick, thanks for doing this. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, great conversation. Um, I feel like we could do this for three more hours. Uh, but the, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I hope the next time um, we can um, touch a couple of different topics that we didn't have the time today. Sure thing. Anytime. All right. Sounds good, Patrick. Take care. Talk okay. soon. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.